1: Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo in your company's future with totally new sources of information that will change the way you run your business. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the game changers, you are in the right place. Today's buzz, data, data everywhere. I know you know where I got that from, but that's the version we're using today. Let me get started. The Internet of Things, which we finally call IoT with a small O between a cap I and a cap T. It's a vast ecosystem of physical objects. And what are they doing? They're all connected to the Internet. In aggregate, IoT offers the potential of big opportunities to transform your business. I'm talking to you in the audience anywhere in the world. But let's break it down. Let's look at it a little more closely. The IoT, in its simplest way, is nothing more than millions. And I think it may already be trillions of objects, devices, sensors. And they're all generating a continuous stream of data. Hence data, data everywhere. So if we put these all back together, we have what we'd like to call the ultimate big data challenge. You get the picture now. So what happens at the intersection of big data and the Internet of Things? I know that sounds like an ad for a popular drugstore chain in New York, but the intersection of big data and the IoT, that's what we're going to be talking about today. have a panel of experts ready to share their points of view, their expertise, and later in the show, their predictions. So let's get started. First up on the panel is W. David Stephenson. He's the principal of Stephenson Strategies, and he sent me a wonderful quote from Thomas Jefferson, one of America's founding fathers and the third president of the U.S., and here's the quote. I like the dreams of the future better than the history of the past so he was more a futurist than a historian welcome w david Stevenson. how are you today Thank
2: you very much i i must admit i'm a little ambivalent because i really do love studying history in fact i'm um right now i'm on a um, benjamin franklin kick right now i i'm convinced that if franklin were plopped down in 21st century america that he would be um, one of the uh, great um, innovators dealing with the Internet of Things. He'd probably be holding hackathons to uh, <laughs> do some uh, clever ideas to deal with public needs uh, through the Internet of Things, which is one of my big uh, concerns. But I do love the future and am convinced that the Internet of Things is going to play an absolutely critical role in dramatic transformation of just about every aspect of our lives in the next decade.
0: Thank you, David. I want to want to get you to embellish a little bit more for businesses listening today. I mentioned that there are vast opportunities to transform businesses. Just could you give us a little overview of what this means to a business? In, pick any industry, pick any any footprint, any uh, any place in the world. What what can a business expect if they engage, in case they're not already
2: there, David? Sure. Well, one actually that, uh, the, that brings together history and the future, uh, one of my favorite examples of the IOT is the Union Pacific Railroad. Here it is, you know, grounded in the 19th century, massive uh, locomotives, these uh, trains that can stretch two miles long in some cases, and yet they are also on the cutting edge of the internet of things one of their big concerns is derailments due to what are called hot boxes the uh, bearings that overheat and actually can catch fire so what have they done they put uh... sensors every twenty miles along the track bed they have um, uh... They they, they they um... do uh... infrared uh... inspection of the um, of the bearings and they create massive amounts of data every single day and the bottom line has been that it's really been able to reduce their uh, unplanned outages and now they can do uh, one of my favorite things, uh, predictive maintenance rather than simply reacting in a crisis.
0: Very exciting, thank you, I love the example and I know we're gonna have a lot more during the show And by the way now that you and I are good friends I'm gonna drop the W and just call you David Stevenson, is that okay? All right. Yes, that's what happens when you get to be besties in the first five minutes of a radio show. And speaking of Davids, we have another David on the panel today. It's David Yonker. I'll spell his last name. It's J-O-N-K-E-R. He's a senior director of big data initiatives for SAP. And here's a quote from Langdon Winner. And I'll tell you a second who that is. The quote is, technological neutrality is a myth. And those of you wondering why David picked this, the Langdon winner is a political theorist on social and political issues that surround modern technological change. And he's the author of Autonomous Technology, but I'll stop there. David Yonker, welcome. How are you today?
3: Thanks, Bonnie. I'm doing great today. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: Delighted. So talk to me. Interesting. Tell us a little more about Langda Winner and why this quote. It's only five little words, but I think it packs a big punch. So why don't you explain to
3: us? Yeah, it does pack a, a big punch. We, uh, we often have uh, utopian visions of what the future holds, and, and we should, right? We should always be looking forward in a very positive way of, of what could be done with technology. Um, but we can't be naive about it either. And we need to understand that technology uh, is never neutral. Um, and, uh, and we, could, we could probably spend a whole hour just debating that, that comment right there. Technology is never neutral. Um, but when you take a look at what we're talking about doing with the Internet of Things, we're talking about taking uh, technology and embedding it even deeper into our society. In fact, even embedding it directly into us, uh, in some cases. And uh, and this is a is kind of a, a next progression in terms of how we uh, how we take technology. If you actually take a look at um, the um, uh, the history of technology, you know, you could say originally it started as a bunch of tools that that that. Um, you know, we would use within our hand, uh, and then it moved on to technologies, so these kind of more uh, complex, connected tools or, or parts. Uh, eventually, that went to technical systems. Right when we talk about, um, you know, our electricity grid and the, the electricity we find in the home, or our roads and the transportation systems, the cars, all these kind of interconnected technologies that work together. Computing, internet took it to another level, and now we're talking about IoT. Uh, which, when we talk about IoT, we're actually talking about integrating even deeper into our society, um, and and if we want to reach a place of utopia with technology, we have to be very mindful of how uh, technology influences us and how uh, the design of technology or the design of IoT uh, can influence uh, where our society goes.
0: I like the idea of reaching a utopia. That's another entire hour-long show, David. I appreciate that very much. We can dream, can't we? Yes. And then who gets to design the utopia? That's another subject. Let me bring on our third panelist today. It's Ira Burke, who is the Vice President of Solutions Go to Market at SAP. Ira also works with Darren Crowder, who's the sponsor of this series, The Internet of Things with Game Changers. So we put Ira on the other side of the microphone today. Ira, I still expect you to be tweeting what you and the other panelists are saying while you're speaking, so get ready. And here's the quote from Ira is from Victor Hugo. Those of you wondering, scratching your head, I think that name sounds familiar. Victor Hugo was a French poet, novelist, and dramatist of the romantic movement. But most important, hey, anybody ever seen Les Mis on Broadway? Uh Victor Hugo wrote the original story and The Hunchback of Notre Dame as well. So here's the quote. All the forces in the world are not so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Another punch filled, packed, filled quote. So, Ira Burke, welcome to this side of the microphone, and please tell us why you picked this Victor Hugo quote and how it relates to our topic today.
4: Bonnie, thank you very much, and it it is a pleasure to be on this side of the microphone. looking forward to our time together. I'm glad. um, It's remarkable how this topic, how the Internet of Things so quickly, is coming into almost every... Discussion, every presentation, every conversation—we uh, spend so much time uh, speaking with different customers in industry after industry—and um, this this topic is uh, is utterly pervasive. It's making everybody take a step back and think about the products or services they're offering, about their roadmaps for the future. Um, and it is reframing and reshaping everything, even, even in our own, our own area, right? So I've spent a lot of time at SAP in the middleware space, and we've literally rethought, rethought the entire operation and said, how are we enabling the Internet of Things, right? This is, you know, far and away the most important topic that we have, and, uh, and it's just, it, it's amazing and exciting to, to watch it come together, and, uh, looking forward to hearing as well more of the discussion today about how that's happening.
0: I like that. I have a question for you, Ira. I'm not letting you off the hook so quickly your first time on with us. The question is, as powerful as an idea whose time has come, how do we know when the idea's time has come? Who gets to decide? Is it the same person who designs David Yonker's Utopia? Who Is, is, it, is it a collection of forces? Is it you and me and the other panelists? Or how do we know when an idea's time has come? Just a little social thought here.
4: No, it's a great it's a great question. I'm certainly looking forward to the utopia aspect, but uh, <laughs> there, there there's just no hiding from it, right? And that's that's the thing. There's uh, there's so many topics where either you know we're looking to introduce it, or somebody has an idea, and we see if it holds value for one customer or another. Uh, this is different, right? This is really changing the way that uh, that we think about any business problem or business opportunity it's changing the way we think about technology and the priorities and the uses uh, so i don't know that anybody's deciding but here it is right in our face and so uh, so it's uh, it, it's it's at least for from where i said it's that it's that obvious and not waiting for I'm not waiting for everyone anyone to dictate that the time has arrived because uh, because here it is
0: I like that. I want to go back to the other two panelists and have them chime in on this before I ask you all what you're drinking. You know that's coming. Uh, David Stevenson, what do you think about all the forces in the world are not so powerful as an idea whose time has come? How do we know?
2: Well, picking up on what Iris said, one of the things that I think is so powerful about this, it's not just a tool. In order to really uh, exploit the full potential of the Internet of Things, I'm convinced that it's going to really require a whole new way, as he was saying, of thinking about Mm -hmm. various business issues. And uh, I I liken this to, um, uh, I I talk about uh, what I call uh, a situation of collective blindness uh, that affected every single human being on the planet. And because it affected all of us, we uh, didn't realize this was a problem, we just thought it was a given, and so mm-hmm. we didn't bother research it. Well, with the Internet of things, we're lifting that collective blindness for the longest time. Say, for example, on an assembly line, you would look at these massive pieces of equipment, and aside from a few gauges on them, it was very, very hard to find out what was actually happening. With those individual pieces of equipment on the assembly line, um, until unfortunately they they broke, and now we're able to gauge that instantly. Uh, GE has got a plant that makes high end batteries for um, cell towers, and they have, if you can imagine, ten thousand sensors on the assembly line as well as sensors in the individual batteries, and it allows the manager of the plant to walk around and actually fine-tune things on a real-time basis. We haven't had that kind of Mm real-time information in the past, and that is a dramatic change, and we need to change the way we think in order to fully exploit that.
0: Thank you so much David Yonker I bet you have something to say on this
4: when do we know the idea has
3: come Ooh it depends who you're talking to I, okay. I don't, it's that's a difficult one to answer it's uh it's not a uh, there's no no clear cut um, answer to that right so uh an idea may have come for for us for the the wealthy may have come for North America may have come for you know mm. others who decides you know who the idea has come for and and whether it's actually powerful enough Maybe that's
0: a cop okay. out. No, no, that's not a cop out. That, that's a good thing because we, we all know we, and if you think about people complaining over the, over the years, dang, I wish I didn't have to change the oil in my car so often or dang, I wish I didn't have to pay so much for this or that or why couldn't this be done a little better? Maybe that's the collection of ideas that have created this opposition to uh, what David Stevenson called the collective blindness. Maybe we want to open our eyes and say, is it possible now to solve all these problems and we're all ready for them? Maybe that's when the idea's time has come, when we all know we were asking for that to be solved. I'm just putting that out on the table. And now that I've set the table with that idea, I'm going to ask you all, what are you drinking today? I know that was a terrible segue. David Stevenson, what's in your cup today? Where are you calling from and what are you drinking right now? Or what do you wish you were drinking after the show?
2: Please. I'm calling from Medfield, Massachusetts, a historic town that's been around since uh, 1649. And I'm drinking a cup of Lapsang Suchong tea. It's uh, black tea from China. And um, I think it's rather funny in light of the fact I can't stand smoking. It has been... Uh, likened to drinking cigarette butts. And it's a smoked <laughs> tea that has been uh, smoke-dried over pine and uh, gives it a very smoky flavor. Uh, also, I must say, unfortunately, it also introduces oxalic acid into in, it. So I paid a price for loving Lapsang Souchong. I spent some time in the hospital with kidney stones that were a direct result of it. So it's a mixed pleasure, I must say.
0: Oh, my goodness. Be still, my heart. We want you to be healthy. Maybe you could switch to green tea. Would would you please, next time you come on the show, I want to hear you drinking something else. But thank you for sharing. David Yonker, where are you calling from and what's in your cup?
3: You bet. Yeah, I'm calling from a sleepy little town called Waterloo in Canada. It's uh, probably best known as the uh, headquarters or home of BlackBerry, uh, and uh, headquarters or home for uh, OpenText. So, an SAP's got a little office uh, here in in Waterloo. So, okay. Yeah. So, and I've got my uh, my cup sitting in front of me, and uh, it's a pretty dirty looking cup from use <laughs> over over many years. Um, it's got tea in it, I think. And the reason I say <laughs> I think well. Uh, I've been uh, doing a fair bit of work lately uh, in the area of fraud in the food industry. And uh, well, before I actually say these stats, if you don't want to hear it, please plug your ears now. Um, All right. But, uh, but there is a lot of fraud in the food industry. In fact, actually, um, uh, the, um, the amount of substitution that happens, for example, and Teas and coffee, for example, if you're drinking something in your cup, probably in this, uh, this special tea that, uh, that's put you, given you some uh, challenges, David, uh, health challenges. Uh, it's interesting to see what, what actually gets substituted in. And, and in many ways, it's actually a techno- technological problem figuring out how to, to clean up the food industry using sensors. You-
0: using sensors, do you want to? You mean a sensor could detect if there's a little too much smokiness in the Lapsang Suchong tea that's going to put David Stevenson in the hospital again? Oh, no. Can he put that sensor in his cup?
3: <laughs> uh, well, it's not too far off. They figure three to five years, and you'll be able to uh, have a little attachment to a handheld device, swipe any sort of uh, food and uh, or drink, beverage, and it'll tell you exactly what you're looking at.
0: Wow, interesting. Well, thank you very much. That's kind of scary. We didn't close our ears, and maybe we want to know. Maybe, David Yonker, it's an idea whose time has come. So there. And Ira Burke, Ira Burke, what are you drinking and where are you calling from today? Uh,
4: So I'm calling in from Stamford, Connecticut, and, uh, I was listening to uh, to David Stevenson talk about Medfield being uh, founded in 1649. So, uh, the, the 1640s must be an important time for founding towns. Uh, Stamford also came in the 1640s. Uh, so uh, so that's uh, that's the historical segment for uh, for today's show what 's in my glass is water from the Stanford Reservoir. Um, but um, i'll look forward this evening to uh, to opening a bottle of uh, a bottle of scotch which uh, which I chose because uh, when uh, when we travel around the world, sometimes we uh, come together and look for things that are interesting in the place where we are. Uh, what do we think about when we 're passing through Heathrow airport is of course selecting a new bottle of scotch and so I have here a fifteen year old Highland Park um on on unreserved on for uh, for later this evening
0: Highland Park unreserved
4: no, I reserved it for myself. Oh, you, you um,
0: reserved it for yourself. Okay. I'm trying to take notes so I can tweet this after the show. You know how that goes, Ira. Well, I certainly interesting. And I have to tell my, co- my panelists here, well, I'm part of you, they only let Bonnie have water on radio show days because they think the caffeine would be just too much. But I rest my case. We have a great panel, a lot of energy, a lot of personality, and a lot of expertise here. I'm speaking with David Stevenson of Stevenson Strategies, David Yonker. Uh, Big Data Initiatives at SAP and Ira Burke uh, Solutions Go to Market at SAP. Our topic today is At the Intersection of Big Data and the Internet of Things. A lot of interesting facts have been shared so far and we have a lot more. When we come back after the break, we'll have a roundtable that's going to go a good 25 minutes nonstop and we'll kick it off with something from the notes David Stevenson sent me before the show. So, David, get ready. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to... The Internet of Things with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. This is episode number four, I think, in our series. that started a couple of weeks ago, and we're delighted to be here today sharing all this great information with you. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Michael, out.
1: The pace of innovation is moving faster than ever, and the future of business will be defined by how quickly business leaders adapt to accelerated, ongoing change. Insights from totally new sources of data, sensors that capture and share what is happening in your business environment, and the tools to understand it and act on it. These are shaping the definition of future success. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how business leaders can shape the future of change. Internet of Things with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. You're listening to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Internet of Things with Game Changers.
0: Welcome back, and today I can tell you exactly where we are. We are standing at the intersection of big data and the Internet of Things. How's that for a a Google Maps? I dare you to find it, but you just might. While we're talking to W. David Stevenson of Stevenson Strategies, David Yonker at SAP, and Ira Burke at SAP. Our topic today is just where I said we're standing. I'm going to kick off the roundtable with David Stevenson. And, David, I changed my mind during the break on where we're going to open up the roundtable, so just bear with me here, and I'm going to surprise you. I'm looking at your notes from before the show, and I think this is a very important point to make since big data is part of our title today. You say, the sheer quantity of data with the IoT, Internet of Things, threatens to overwhelm us. And then you add, as much as possible, we need to migrate to fog computing, where as much data as possible is processed at the edge and only the most relevant data passes to the cloud. That sounds like a formula for sanity and success to me. David Stephenson, why don't you kick this off, please?
2: Thanks, Bonnie. Um, uh, Guys, I'll defer to you on the exact uh, stats about uh, the volume of data that we are already creating and um, uh, are going to be in the next couple of years, it is just absolutely staggering. But, um, it, you know, it's just a matter of common sense as far as I'm concerned. If you are having sensors that are uh, harvesting data 24-7, then and you've got a whole bunch of them, then it makes sense that you should process that data at the edge rather than um, send it on to the cloud and have this overwhelming amount of data when, in fact, it's probably really only a small portion of that data that's really relevant. You know, for example, um, if you're monitoring operating conditions, you're most interested in the exceptions. I saw a great demonstration a couple weeks ago when I was uh, giving a speech in Washington um, about a new platform called Egbert that uh, combination of uh, software and and hardware that um, processes data at the edge. It was really cool because they gave us a a live demonstration from a uh, dollar store somewhere in the south, and um, you could actually see what was happening right then at the store. And, um, again, they were only passing on the most relevant data, to uh, the cloud, and the rest of it was being processed right at the edge, and I think that's a really important uh, distinction.
0: I like that a lot, David Yonker, You want to chime in, and do you have any stats? No pressure, but any stats you want to share with us, or do you agree with David Stephenson's POV?
3: Yeah, I uh, I agree. Um, I don't have any stats. You know, the the uh, the number's so big. I think the stats become irrelevant. Exactly what you know, how much data there's going to be, but. Um, the, the challenge that, uh, you know, the dirty little secret, actually, with big data in the cloud and IoT in the cloud is that uh, it, our networks are are not really designed to, to move data very quickly. Um, and as a result, what we see is uh, uh, often when you talk about moving big data into the cloud, for example, you talk to the IT folks, and what they're actually doing is that they're discovering it's actually faster to ship all this massive amount of data using FedEx than it is to try and upload it. Um, and, uh, hmm. you know, the, the right way to deal with big data in the cloud is, is uh, as David mentioned, you're looking for the exceptions. You want to process it as local as possible. The less you have to move the data, the better.
0: Thank you. Ira Burke, thoughts?
3: You know, I, um, I, I guess
4: I could represent a point of view on multiple sides of this question because, uh, first first of all, every, everything that, that they said is completely true, right? There is a huge amount of data. There's only so much of it we can move. Um and, uh, and processing it close to where it's generated is hugely important, and we're just scratching the surface of how best to do that. Uh, we have uh, things like the concept of complex event processing, and if we can push that out to the edge, if we can push that out to see what's happening from the sensors just in our general vicinity and draw conclusions and take action Based on what's happening there, we'll get a tremendous benefit um, of the information right at its source, and that doesn't need to be transported off to someplace centrally. On the other hand, on the other hand, how do we know what we don't know? How do we know the patterns that are going to emerge from combining all of the information from all of the sensors, from all of the sources, in all of the places where they're happening? This is where fresh insights are going to come from, and if we can build and develop and enhance the infrastructure that can move the information to the center and that can analyze the information when it's there, um, it's uh, it, 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 you could just imagine how many things we can uh, we can discover that haven't been discovered yet because that kind of information has never been assembled. And that's been the history of big data, right? That as we gather new information that, that was too massive to contemplate, and as we conquer it and as we, as we get it into memory and as we look at what's there, um, we can draw insights that, uh, that, that nobody believed. So I think, uh, I, I think all of the points of view are valid, and I think we're going to see benefits from all of them over time.
0: Interesting. I'm going to pose a question to you, Ira, and ask the other panelists as well. Is this the role of the newly emerging role, job role, position called data scientist, where they would have the capability and the skills and the patience to be able to take a look at this and say what stays on the edge, what moves to the center? Aha, there's something new in there. Maybe we can have a new idea whose time is coming. We didn't even know we had the idea yet. Is this the data scientist role done well, Ira Burke?
4: So, so I certainly believe it is, right? I think it's going to take a combination of very smart, um, you know, data engineers and, and, and network scientists and all, there are all kinds of roles that are going to have to be in place. To make this work, but once the information has been gathered and once the right tools are available, then it's exactly these data scientists who are going to be able to help lead the way to understand what questions to ask, how to ask insightful questions, mm-hmm. not to take anything for granted, not to already presuppose the answer before you pose the question, uh, but to take a fresh look at the
2: data that comes together and see what we can learn. And I think that's exactly I like the that. role of data scientists.
0: Thank you, Davis Stevenson. Thoughts on that role I mentioned?
2: Yep. You know, I think that definitely is true. But at the same time, Bonnie, I think there's also a role for subject matter experts. And um, following uh-huh. up on, on uh, what Iris said about this, um, this can literally save lives. There was a wonderful example. I know you had a session a couple weeks ago about uh, trying to reduce infant mortality in, in Indiana, and um there was a situation a couple years ago where IBM teamed up with the Children's Hospital in Toronto and they plastered the babies these were the neonates the the really sickest of um of all the infants there they plastered their bassinets with sensors and it yielded an incredible amount of data well with a combination of data scientists and the neonatologists they noticed the most amazing thing. It turned out that a full day before one of these sick neonates would uh, exhibit signs of an infection, the curious thing happened. Their heartbeats became incredibly regular. And this happened in case after case. Nobody would have ever thought of that before. Um, And so they were actually able to intervene a full day earlier and reduce... um, how serious these infections are. So I think it's, um, it really is going to, This is a theme of a book I did a couple of years ago called Data Dynamite, that um, I think we need to democratize access to data, and it's going to be a combination of those specialists in data science and all sorts of other people who combine their their um, expertise.
0: Thank you very much. David Yonker, I'd love to hear from you.
3: Yeah, for sure. I would take a very pluralistic view um, uh, to this. Yeah, data scientists have a role to play to say, "Hey, this data looks interesting. This data doesn't." You know, I, I want to. I want us to start collecting this data for a little while so we can do some analysis. Um, but then you've got a, you know, and, and that's uh, in in many ways kind of a back office effort. Uh, you've got a front office effort too, though, right? That says, uh, you know, I just I need to build an architecture that's moving data back and forth from. Um, you know, or, or being processed in the right place, whether it's at the edge or whether it's at the data center or wherever it is. And, uh, you know, a lot of that is a, a decision about uh, IT architecture, right? What networks am I running over? What is that, how do I pull that off? What does that look like? What's the cost to deploy things out in the field versus in a data center? Um, so it's not, uh, you know, I think it's going to be, a, you got IT involved, architects involved, you got data scientists involved, you got subject matter experts all involved in making some of those decisions, um, which actually, uh, to finish off, is kind of uh, in some ways different than maybe it works today, right? Today, the subject ma- everything sits in a data center. I know that's not quite true, but, you know, data center or desk. But, um, you know, an IT kind of makes those decisions on their own. Uh, I think that as we move to an IoT environment, it actually need to be more multidisciplinary in terms of how and where and who uh, decides what data gets moved where.
0: Good point. Sounds like there are some politics that will come into play, David Yonker, and that a lot of roles will have to be recruited and trained and people will have to keep an open mind within the confines of the business strategy, the business goals, and trying to keep the bottom line healthy. Sounds like a lot going on. I'm going to move to a slightly different direction unless, Ira Burke, did you have anything else to say on this one or David Stevenson?
2: Everybody uh, good? Just, uh, David Stevenson. Yeah. I Just uh, yeah. uh, one thing that um, I think is going to be a real challenge in this, is that in the past it was so hard to gather data that um, almost naturally what happened was you had senior executives who were the ones who had first crack at it, and mm-hmm. they would analyze it, and then they would pass down the data that was most relevant in their eyes. And um, now, for the first time ever, we have the potential of everybody, everybody who needs data in order to do their job better and to make better decisions having simultaneous real-time access to that data. That is astounding, (laughs) and it's going to be, uh, I think, it's something I, I haven't read much in the uh, IoT literature about this, but I think it's going to be a really interesting management challenge as to how we Mm -hmm. change access to data in the future now that we really can share it instantly. That's a
0: great segue for me. Thank you, David Stevenson. I'm looking at David Yonker's Talking points, you sent me before the show, and there's a very interesting one here down near the bottom. You say even things need their privacy. Let me read a little bit, and then David Yonker, you can come in and expand. You say privacy is one of the big looming issues around IoT, the Internet of Things, and big data. A lot of people get the privacy issue with data, big data itself. The vision of companies tracking your every move, we know it's creepy. But a natural reaction is to say that... The data is taken from things and not people, and therefore people don't see the issue. Sounds like I'm going around in circles, but I think you can straighten me out. So, David Yonker, is the data coming from me? Is it coming from the, the Fitbit I'm wearing on my wrist? Is it coming from the car seat on which I'm putting my, uh, <laughs> putting my derriere? Where is the data coming from, me or the object? Good question.
3: Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's coming from the object, but that object represents something, and, and often that thing is, is you. Um, you know, and, and in many ways, when you, kinda, when you opened up the, the, the conversation, Bonnie, the, the topic or the, the session, you, you talked about how IoT is sort of nothing more than lots of these objects and sensors. And, mm-hmm. and I would take objection to that because I would say, yes, there are sensors out there, but we can't view them as just nothing more than sensors, right? Um, and, and there's some great examples. So uh, SAP, for example, has done some work with um, some uh, tire manufacturers, uh, and, and they're embedding sensors into the tires. Now you would say so that they can essentially take a look and say, you know, uh, is the tire at optimal pressure, you know, in big commercial vehicles? Uh, and, uh, you might say, well, that's a very natural, uh, thing to use. In fact, actually that was my original mm-hmm. reaction when, when I heard about it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if someone's just kind of reading the sensor data about how that, that the tire pressure, what what could ever be a privacy issue around that? Uh, and then yet I started doing some work with uh, actually a, a privacy expert out of the UK and in international law and privacy. And he pointed out the challenge with that is that uh, that tire sensor happens to be uh, combined with GPS data. And so now what you're saying is you know where that driver is at all times. Uh, and that is a privacy issue. Maybe not in some countries, but in lots of other countries it is. Um, and so uh, companies have to be very careful about about just writing off a sensor as simply an object reading data. Uh, and you have to go behind that and understand what does that separ- sensor represent and does it represent individuals?
0: Very interesting question. I think we're, we're getting a lot deeper into the topic. And thank you for challenging me on my opening statement. I appreciate that. It's always good to have a lively discussion. Ira Burke, you've got to chime in here. What do you think about privacy of big data and IoT?
4: you know i th- i think it's an issue that that sneaks up on people right so even even if you are coming at it from the point of view that um that that the information is just there to be explored and analyzed um i think it can be surprising how quickly it does turn into a uh, privacy issue that needs to be managed or controlled um how many times have you had or have you heard somebody talk about a, uh, an online shopping experience where one minute they 're browsing a website for a product, and then you know by sheer coincidence, a minute later there 's a, there's a special offer in their email inbox, and you 're starting to wonder, how did that happen and who 's watching me and who 's got the information and the, and The answer, of course, is that as you put big data together, you can learn a lot about people 's habits and that once that translates from just browsing a website to uh to living living your daily life, where where you drive your car and how you drive it, how you consume electricity in your home, how many times you open your refrigerator. Think about how many places where there can be sensors gathering information and about the unexpected conclusions that you might be able to draw from putting that information together, uh, you may find that there's a whole lot less privacy than you expected just from uh from, from the placement of individual uh sensors in the environment. And uh, it's worthwhile to think through those issues um, at, at the beginning, instead of uh, instead of waiting for the uh, for the consequences to uh, to occur.
0: Very interesting point. I'm just going to take a little side note here, anecdotally. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to my auto insurer a couple of years ago, and I said, "Hey, you're charging me the minimum for a supposed." I don't know, three to 5,000 miles a year I'm putting on my car. And I said, Hey, 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 I work from a home office. I'm doing world global radio from a radio setup in my home office. My car is garaged. It's got an alarm on it. It barely leaves the garage for maybe 10 miles a week. And once in a while, a little more. And you're charging me for, for a minimum, let's say 3,500. How can I get around this? And they said, Oh, we're going to put a device in your car and you'll let us track your mileage and where you go. And we'll be able to tell. How many actual real miles? And then, Bonnie, maybe will lower the amount of miles you're paying for on your car insurance. And you know what I did? I took a step back and I said, no, thank you. I don't want you to know. That was my reaction. I don't know if it was a high-tech thing. I don't know if it was IoT yet, but uh, David Stevenson, why don't you comment on that? Do you think other people are going to say the same thing about privacy when it, when we get the point of what David Yonker said, which is there's a person who's doing something, that's cre- in many cases, that's creating the data picked up by that sensor? David Stevenson, what do you think?
2: Oh, boy, Bonnie. This is one <laughs> of my favorite topics. Ah! Uh, I um- Uh, I remember a presentation uh, a couple weeks ago in Washington by a a startup, and somebody asked him about security protections, and they said, oh, we're we're just a startup. Um, That's on our list. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you have to bake in security at the absolute get-go. I used to do a lot of corporate crisis management work, and perception is everything when it comes to this kind of deal. And if we have more Um, of the situations like the one in Houston a couple years ago where a couple put a baby monitor in uh, their daughter's room and one night they hear this screaming coming from the room. They go in and there's this guy with this East European accent um, yelling obscenities at their daughter. And it was because that company had not taken any security protections. turns out. There is a search engine called Shodan, um, that has been described as the Google for Things. And um, you can get all sorts of information about IP addresses of things around the world that can be used. Um, to uh, disrupt them. And um, I guess my my favorite um, example of this was the only U.S. government official who I've been able to find who really has um, been fully supportive of the IOT was David Petraeus when he headed the CIA. And in essence, what he said was, in the past, if we wanted to wiretap you, we'd have to go to a judge and get a... Um, a um, uh, court order in order to break into your house and plant bugs. We don't have to do that anymore. All we have to do is uh, monitor all of the traffic from your IoT devices. And that scared the daylights out of me.
0: I think it does. I'm even more scared now. David Yonker, any thoughts on this before I go in a, another direction with Ira Burke? Talk to me.
3: Uh <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, for sure. The uh, uh, you know I, th- I think there's a there's definitely um, there's definitely a place for organizations to play uh, with uh, or play or or uh, leverage personal information, but to do it in a way that that uh, you know doesn't uh, break privacy. And, and, and most companies out there, at the end of the day, when they're using big data, uh, even the things that seem creepy, uh, you know, when you kind of look behind the covers, it's not that. You know company ABC has figured out that um, you know our friend David here likes obscure tea from you know that's been smoked from China um, mm-hmm. you know it, it's that it, he it, somehow he's triggered an algorithm right that was figured out from big data, but they don't have somewhere log that you know David is this kind of person or or that I'm a certain kind of personality typically usually you're just triggering you know uh, basic patterns in in software, but not necessarily stored or tracked or profile created. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so there's a overall, I think there's a place for industry to educate society about, uh, you know, how they're, they're protecting that information, and how they're using it in a way that, well, may personalize, you know, isn't, isn't, uh, you know, breaking any kind of privacy laws per se.
0: Okay. Ira Burke, I want to look at some of your notes here. We're we're closing in on our break. If we take it, we might just slide right into predictions, and I can't wait for that part of this panel discussion. Ira Burke, you told me in your notes before the show, you said, with the advent of Internet of Things, every business has an opportunity to take a fresh look at its products. Instead of asking, what product do I manufacture, they can now ask, what problem do I solve? So why don't we tie this back to the idea whose time has come – What's the, the way of thinking? What's the mindset of companies today? Let's uh, stick with manufacturing, for example, in terms of wanting to look and see and say, aha, the time has come. We have the technology to do this. What problem can we solve? Yes. Ira, what do you observe?
4: So, so one, of the, uh, one of the important trends that we're seeing um, is how um, by getting more information about the way that your product is used, Right, by being able to monitor um, the product that you know, let's let you know the physical product in the field and the way people are using it mm-hmm. in the areas where it's breaking down and the areas where it's delivering value, tying that to other information you have, you start to learn much more and much finer detail about what's important about your product. You also gain the ability. To, uh, to do mundane things like charging for it in new ways, right? So uh, we, have a, uh, we have a customer that makes, uh, that makes air compressors. And until now, that's been a business of selling physical equipment that compresses air. Uh, but with the sensor information that's available, um, now you can start to charge for the air, right? And you don't have to think about the device nearly as much as you can think about the value that a customer is getting when they consume it. And you can price according to that and you can optimize service according to that. Um, and you can, in the end, deliver a much better customer experience where the price and the value are better aligned. Uh, you can maybe change more things than you realized about the manufacturing process itself, about the devices you deliver, about the way that they're delivered, um, because you know now why somebody is buying your product, how they're using it, and what's important about your ultimate delivery to that customer, and and we see that in industry after industry.
0: Very very interesting. Uh, any examples you want to give us? Anything else?
4: Um, well, so so the compressor is one we're seeing this in, in mm-hmm. agriculture. We're seeing this in mining, um, where the end result of the machine is is able to be monitored, measured, and optimized, um, and uh, rather than, than the machine itself, um, which uh, which is just opening up these new uh, these new business opportunities.
0: Okay, David Stevenson, why don't you take a minute to add on to what Ivor said and the David Yonker, and we're going to try and squeeze a break in here if we can. So, David Stevenson, thoughts on this? New ways to charge for what you've already got out there? Interesting.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, General <laughs> Electric in particular, which I, I love as an example, because like the Union Pacific, they are rooted in the 19th century. Um, they actually still make locomotives, amongst other things, um, and they have really made um, – a huge commitment in this area what they call the uh, for marketing reasons the industrial internet and um they are redesigning um, the vast majority of their products that uh, as they say that turn uh where there's rotation involved and now uh they are for example uh instead of selling jet engines to airlines they are um, leasing those where the lease is based on the number of pounds of thrust or number of hours in the air that um, the products uh, um, actually uh, are, account for. And it's it's great because it's, as far as I'm concerned, sort of a win-win uh, situation because they're meeting customers' needs more efficiently than they had before because that same data that they're using to bill is also used to do predictive maintenance. So there's less downtime. And it's It's Mm -hmm. great, and I think it's going to have a huge impact um, all the way around.
0: Thank you very much. David Yonker, you want to chime in here for a minute before we go to break? And if you go longer, we just won't take a break, and that's okay, too.
3: (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, no, I I agree. You know, the potential is huge, not only for new business models from uh, from a revenue point of view, but, but in many ways, actually uh, reinvigorating other things. Like if you take a look at some of the, the way that, uh, big data and stats have been used in sports, um, you know, and, and increasingly, while they may not be strapping sensors to some of the players, but they are tracking players, uh, using, uh, video cameras and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, all of that information is, for example, in sports coming into, um, uh, you know they're they're providing that essentially to the fans, right? And 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 it's mm-hmm. about changing the experience the fan has, you know, with the, the with the game itself. Um, and of course that'll drive revenue uh, for the the sport in different ways. But in many ways it's the same same sort of idea, right? What are the big business challenges if we if we look at some of the other examples and how is that new experience? Uh, opening up new opportunities to either build closer relationships, which will hopefully drive more revenue or new revenue streams or whatever that is. Um, huge opportunity.
0: Thank you very much. Guess what? We have, let me do the math here. We have to close at 57. That is eight minutes away. I think we're going to skip the break. That's a message to my engineer, Michael, as well as to my guests. So I want all three of you to take a sip of something or just take a deep breath. And I'm going to put the burden of proof here on W. David Stevenson first because you were first up on the panel. And David, I'm going to ask you, do you have a crystal ball handy? Did you get it before the show? You know, I asked you to because I'm going to ask you to look ahead to, if you can, the year 2020 or any year you can see blue sky on what's going to happen in the future with at the let's be, be specific here at the intersection of big data and the internet of things so why don't you give us two minutes of any look ahead that you have in the crystal ball david stevenson are you
2: ready sure bonnie you know in fact um uh that crystal ball is called the orb and it's from a um uh, a firm I can't remember the name of in Boston that is being used um, one of, it was one of the really pioneering um, products with the Internet of Things. It's being used for everything from uh, keeping investors uh, attuned to their uh, stock portfolios. And on the West Coast, utilities are now giving it to executives. Uh, so that they can reduce when when it sends out a signal and it starts to glow, that means cut down on your electric use. So we literally are talking a crystal ball in this case.
0: I uh, love that. Go you, ahead, honey,
2: um, <laughs> um, I I do think it is going to affect everything we do. It's going to your and and. One of the ways is it's going to um, get rid of a lot of dead ends about information in the past, um, and we're going to start going in terms of loops, and those are going to start feeding back, and they're going to increase efficiency. You know, I talked about uh, precision manufacturing. I think the same thing is going to be true for agriculture, for example. Um, we're seeing it in businesses now with um, smart cities. It's going to uh, uh, result in products that delight customers. There's there's work now on cars where you can change the uh, suspension of the car just by pressing a button. And that's Internet of, of Things. And I think my absolute favorite example of this, because somebody alluded early on uh, to uh, the question of whether, uh, how this was going to affect the haves and the have-nots. And my favorite example is from my friend uh, Chris Resendiz who talks about Uh, Grunfoss, the uh, Swedish pump manufacturer, and amongst other things, they do pumps for these remote water wells in very, very rural areas of Africa. You've seen those pictures of the women Mm -hmm. with the big jugs on their shoulders walking miles to get to the pump. Well, uh, guess what? Sometimes they would get to the pump and they find it wasn't working. Well, Grundfos started putting sensors on their pumps because it was in their enlightened self-interest. Because it would often take them a long time to get there if the pumps broke down and had to be repaired. And somebody at Grundfos had this wonderful idea: Why don't we make that data available? And I think on the surface they're like, "What the heck? Mm-hmm. Information from a pump in remote Africa?" What, what's that going to do? Well, in fact, some bright, young African came up with an app that takes that data from the pump and allows the women, before they leave the village, to go to that remote thing to see whether, in fact, it is working or not. And I just love that because it wow. was done for corporate reasons, and then they shared it with the public, and it serves a public Um, interest as well. And I just think that's a beautiful example of the potential for transformation in the future with the Internet of Things. It certainly
0: is. Thank you. Great example. I'm, I'm thinking of the closing of the CMA the other day, the Country Music Awards, and, um, Michael McDonald was playing Taking It to the Streets, and everybody was joining in on stage. It was a great finale. And I'm thinking, Taking It to the Streets, how about Taking It to the Fields, David? Yes, exactly. we are. Yes, we are. I'm sorry for the musical segue, but I digress. David Yonker, time for predictions. Two minutes on the clock.
2: Go.
3: You bet. Well, first prediction is that in 2020 I predict that uh we're going to be doing this uh radio show with Bonnie, David and Ira myself talking doing a, essentially some navel gazing in terms of what the future looks like. Um but uh you know, more seriously we'll uh I suspect that most of what we'll see is um you know, we'll continue to see lots of examples of um uh IoT You know, across across all the industries for sure, Uh, but I suspect that we'll see it heavily entrenched uh, first and foremost within industry. Uh, You know, that's where the biggest value is. Uh, But but things always we always envision things moving faster than they actually do, Um, and uh, you know, so I think that that's probably the first place we'll we'll see it uh, used most heavily. I think that uh, privacy issues around privacy and Mm -hmm. security. Uh, will slow things down on the consumer side. There is, for example, legislation coming in in Europe next year uh, around uh, how and where and when data can be used. For example, around uh, European citizens, and it's unclear at this point how companies will will handle some of the, that regulation. And uh, the IOT, IoT will will just feed into that. Um, and uh, I think that's I, I think those issues are resolvable. Um, the you know in terms of how data gets handled and privacy and that kind of stuff um, but I think that there's some fundamental shifts in terms of the kinds of architectures required uh, to to make all of that happen and uh, we're still very early on and, and some of those bigger issues need to be sorted through
0: thank you very much good predictions and I'm glad you brought up privacy and security because I was going to ask Ira Burke last but not least I can give you oh about a minute and a half predictions
4: go <laughs> hmm. okay so uh I was sitting at a uh, at a, at, a uh, at an SAP sales enablement workshop about a year ago, and there was this um, fascinating slide um, that was being shown to everyone. It looked like a checkerboard, and every square had a device in the square or, or an object. There was a mailbox, there was a telephone, there was a calculator, there was a Walkman, right? And the thing that that these huge number of devices had in common is they'd all basically been eliminated by the smartphone, right? And so, uh, so so, I'm looking around the room now and saying which of these devices are going to be fundamentally changed or replaced or just gone because of IoT. Uh, my prediction is, that, uh, is that, that many or all of them, that we look around the room now, right, and already the, uh, already the light switch on my wall is connected to the Internet. I can turn it on, turn it off remotely. Um, soon the whole house will be connected in a, in a similar way. Um, I expect and I think we can say with a fair amount of confidence that we're going to see see the IoT permeate um, everything that we're doing, and it's up to us now to take, adva- to take advantage of the opportunity to shape what that future is going to, uh, to look like, uh, to think about where we see the benefits, but also the risks, and to, um, and, and to invest the time that it deserves, because uh, we're going to have this wave of opportunity, this wave of replacement of mm-hmm. devices, this wave of new capabilities, and it's up to us to make the, uh, the best use of it.
0: Thank you. I'm waiting for the day when I can put a sensor on the half gallon of 1% milk I buy and they'll say to me, Bonnie, you already had three glasses today and we saw how many Hershey kisses you had with it. Enough. Wait for tomorrow, 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 more chocolate tomorrow. But I digress. I want to thank my wonderful panelists. What energy, what great visions and information you've shared. David Stevenson, W. David Stevenson, to be formal. Stevenson Strategies. Thank you. David Yonker. Thank you so much. Ira Burke. Special thank you For coming out behind the co-producer side and becoming a panelist, I think you did great. And a shout-out to Darren Crowder at SAP, who sponsors this this series, and to Michael and the Business Channel team. And let's see what's coming up. Well, this is the end of our double header. I did coffee break with Game Changers Radio this morning, and now we've just finished our Internet of Things with Game Changers. But I'll be back tomorrow morning with another edition of Innovating Innovation with Game Changers. We're going to be talking about the initial spark of an idea to an implementable idea called the Evolution of ideas, the evolution of innovation. Should be a very interesting conversation. So it's time for my call to action. Here you go. You know what's coming. Fasten your seatbelt. Maybe it has sensors and it'll tell you whether you fastened it properly. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off for another edition of SAP Game Changers Radio. Talk to you tomorrow morning. Bye bye. <music>
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Internet of Things with Game Changers, presented by SAP, the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie B. Graham again on Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.